You're listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I have the privilege of interviewing Kyra Jewelingo about her new book, We Were Made for These Times, 10 Lessons for Moving Through Change, Loss, and Disruption. Kyra was ordained a Buddhist monk at the age of 25 and was a student of the venerable Thich Nhat Hanh. She left the monastic life 15 years later and has a B.A., and an M.A. from Stanford in Anthropology and Social Science with a focus on the African diaspora and liberatory education for African-American students. She is in the process of setting up a Buddhist Christian community of practice, study, and action. Kyra, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Well, a few weeks ago, unfortunately, the well-known Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh passed away. He was your teacher, and you were with him at Plum Village, I wonder if we might start with you talking about the role he played in your life. Sure. Um, well, I grew up in a community. It was a Christian family religious order, and um, we left that community when I was 14. The community sort of dissolved. Um, and ever since, after we left, I was looking for a community uh, I didn't know that at the time, but I knew that uh, I was looking for a kind of living that was really grounded in uh, meaning and, and what's more than just on the surface of our lives. And so after college, uh, where I had the chance to hear Ram Das speak, uh, he he said, you know, here you learn a lot, but you don't learn how to be happy. And that really resonated with me. Um, I, I felt I had gotten a very good education, and I also felt like I didn't know how to take care of my own happiness and suffering and um, how, to, how to not make other people suffer. And so uh, I really was clear I needed to find a teacher and a community after leaving, uh, finishing my bachelor and master's. I went off in search of, of that in different places, looking, visiting communities in India. I didn't think I wanted to be a nun. I just wanted to find some way to ground my life in spiritual practice. And I didn't have any connection to Buddhism, but I, um, I had a friend who told me about a summer retreat at Plum Village, the monastery Thich Nhat Hanh founded in the south of France. So I went in 97, and as soon as I saw... I knew he was my teacher. So he had that effect on me immediately. And um, I never lost that feeling, that intuition, that knowing. So I think the, the main thing that he transmitted to me was faith in myself. And um, he loved us all so much that I really began to internalize that love and to be able to feel it for myself and um, and offer it to myself like mm-hmm. he was offering it to us. He's a true bodhisattva, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, let's, I appreciate that. Um, let's shift gears a little bit and talk the rest of the hour, the rest of the half an hour about your book, okay? Sure. Um, I might note for the listeners that the book has meditation exercises in it and journaling exercises. 
um, uh, for many of the things that we'll discuss. A little hard to talk about that in detail in an interview, so we're going to talk about some of the concepts. And let me start you off, though, with a question about, let's call it applicability for the moment. New Orleans, for example, where I'm at, is a very Catholic city. Mm-hmm. To the person who asks, you know, why are these Buddhist concepts in your book of any relevance to a Christian or someone who's Jewish or Muslim? How do you mm-hmm. respond? Yeah, great question. Um, well, I wouldn't say necessarily that the concepts in the book are Buddhist. Okay. They do stem from um, the Buddha's teachings, but they they also uh, they also stem from um, the human experience of um, accessing what's so deep in each one of us that really helps us when we need guidance, when we need um, clarity, and when we need to access peace. And that's beyond any of our different religions. There's something deeper than, than each of their particular expressions. There's a, a Catholic monk, actually, Father Bede Griffiths. He was English, and he went to India, and he lived in an ashram in India as a Catholic monk, but he really integrated Hinduism, different, you know, Buddhism. He, he advocated practice, spiritual practice that was really inclusive to all traditions, and he talked about uh, the, the metaphor of the hand. So the palm of the hand is the world of spirit, the world of truth, the world of infinite love, and that the fingers are the expressions of that in the world's different religions. And so um, they all come from the same source. And uh, so I would say that the the teachings in this book draw on the same source of, as a Catholic book or a Jewish book, or uh-huh. um, and they're very deeply personal. Like I share my own personal stories of how I, you know, encou- you went through one of the most difficult times in my life, and I think. All, all, all humans can relate to those experiences, yeah. regardless of the particular path that we're on. Well, the, the book does a very good job of that, and especially the way it's structured. Well, let's jump in then. In the first chapter of the book, you introduce the concept that may, may not be known for some folks of coming home to yourselves or coming home to mm-hmm. ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you might explain that concept. Sure. Um, so there is a, a place, uh, an experience each of us is capable of um, growing inside of us, of really being ourselves, where we're not um, at the mercy of what's happening around us. Um, so often we go through our lives and we're like a... Uh, a soda machine where people, you know, press this button and they get this. So people say things that upset us and they get, we, we get angry and we, we give them a Coke of anger. If mm-hmm. people say things that, you know, or do things that make us feel happy, then we produce a Sprite or something of happiness. But what would it mean to live where no matter what buttons people press, we get to decide what arises in our mind? And that's that place of being in our true home where 
we have freedom, we have stillness, we have calm, and um, it's, it's a place no one can take away from us, no matter what happens, and that cannot be damaged or destroyed, unlike our physical homes externally. So this is, I think, the whole point of all of our different religious traditions, spiritual paths, is to help us really access the, um, the profound safety and power of being able to come back and just be present with what is happening inside of us, where we really know what's going on and we begin to understand why. So often we're kind of ruled by our unconscious. So we have a desire to do something, but we don't know where that desire comes from. We don't know why we're suddenly, you know, driving 80 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour going to some place. We just, we just did it. Or we don't know why we're, you know, in front of the fridge at 2 in the morning looking for something to eat. So we have these things that can kind of um, control us. And when we know how to come back to our true home, we, we can see why, those, why we're motivated to do those things. And we can choose to do the things that are really beneficial and not to do the things that are not beneficial to us. You know, you say, right. you say in that first chapter, and I actually I wrote the quote down because I think it's, it's profound, but I also think people will be puzzled by it. You say, quote, we can live our whole lives estranged from this home within ourselves, close quote. And, mm-hmm. you know, you use the Coke machine analogy, and that's, that's a, apropos in, in some ways. But how is it that folks get sidetracked like that, where they, they lose mm-hmm. who, who they are. Well, we live in a culture that really um, offers us many ways to get distracted and disconnected from who we are. I mean, our phones and all these, you know, technologies of, of our devices are, are actually, have been specifically built to become addictive and to, to, you know, really eat our attention. Um, I, any of us who've been on Facebook or Instagram, we know what it's like to go down the rabbit hole. You, you start out wanting to check one thing, and then, poop, there's a notification, or, pop, there's something else, and suddenly an hour has gone by, and you had no idea what, what you just yeah, did. Yeah. Um, so part of it's the culture. Um, part of it is also, um, I think there's a lot of fear about really turning inward and facing what's there. We may have suffering. We may have suffering from our ancestors. um, And there may be things we just would rather avoid. And so we come up with all sorts of things to, to avoid facing what's painful. But if we can really turn and touch that, we actually will find we have the capacity to be to be with it. And there are tools that we can, of course, strengthen in us, strengthen in our spiritual practice so that we can be with the discomfort. And we find it's not this monster that's going to, you know, <laughs> that we won't survive. It is something that can become integrated and pacified and we can become friends with it 
and through that become free. Yeah, and that's part of what you do in the book. In that regard, can I get you to read an excerpt uh, sure. from the book, perhaps even from that first chapter? Yeah, yeah. So this is exactly what we've been talking about. Um, so it's especially, this is from page 10, mm -hmm. it's especially tempting in times of transition and challenge to abandon our home, to leave our territory in search of answers, perhaps by worrying about what will happen in the future. This is precisely the moment when we need to take when we need to return to the present moment, feel our bodies, and take good care of ourselves now. Because the future is made of this moment. If we take good care of this moment, even if it's very difficult, we are taking good care of the future. It may also be hard to come home if we sense that unresolved pain has accumulated and we don't want to face it. We may get into the habit of avoiding our home completely. We don't want to be with those raw, unprocessed parts of our experience that are painful and maybe quite scary. If this is our situation, it is important to have compassion for ourselves for not wanting to return home to face these difficulties inside of us. And yet the only way we can heal them, move through them, and make our home a more cozy place is to turn towards them. As the teaching goes, the only way out is in or through. The practices we will learn in this book will help us to have the courage to go back and put our house in order and give us the tools to do so, so we can slowly learn to enjoy being back in our true home. Very nice. Well, let me ask you this. In the book, throughout the book, at various times, obviously, you're talking about mindfulness and being in the present moment. Um, can we say that that is a, an egoless state? Um, I think mindfulness is definitely a, an energy, a, a practice that leads to an egoless state, um, but it's not always right off the bat that. Okay. Um, it takes time. Mindfulness needs to deepen and grow. And when we have enough mindfulness, then we start to have concentration. So as we focus on our breathing or on our body or on hearing sounds or on what we're seeing or on the feeling of our body moving if we're doing walking practice, the more we do that, the more we just pay attention to what's happening moment to moment, the more our concentration develops. So we're less distracted, we're less caught up in our thoughts and worries and plans and then as that concentration develops, then we begin to have insight arise. And insight is what really leads us to the egoless state, where we realize we're not a separate self cut off from all other things. Um, but that's not necessarily there immediately when mindfulness arises, but okay. mindfulness is definitely what leads us to that. Okay. Well, you talk about this in the book, and it, it, maybe it's, it's practical for folks to hear. So let's talk about the person who has that big decision to make. Okay, you know, yeah. whether to marry or to take a job or to move mm -hmm. out of town, a decision mm -hmm. you had to confront when you talked yeah. about leaving the monastic life. Mm -hmm. How can mindfulness help in that process? Yeah, so mindfulness can help us to be aware of what are the emotions, what is the experience of the not knowing. There's usually anxiety there, there's wanting to... Um, you know, there's a fear of making the wrong choice. 
there's trying to think our way through, well, pros and cons. If I do this, then this could happen if I do that, right? So we can we can actually wind ourselves up into quite a ball of anxiety the more we try to think our way into an answer. And mindfulness can help us notice, gosh, every time I think about this, my brow furrows or I'm clenching my teeth or my stomach is tight. And we can let those parts of the body release. And we can know, okay, I'm worried, I'm anxious, or I'm really concerned that I really want to make the right decision. I want to figure out what's what's the way to move forward here. And so mindfulness can actually help us to befriend that deep wish to, to know, which is so human and so natural that we want to know what to do. We want to figure it out. So we can actually be kind to ourselves in that time of, um, it's a very painful place to be when we don't know what to do or when we have, we're presented with a choice and it's a difficult choice. And so mindfulness can help us be compassionate to ourselves and actually create the space for deeper wisdom to arise so that we're not um, responding out of reactivity. We're not, we're not making a decision out of fear, but we have a chance to access something deeper than that, which is our wisdom which is our ability to pause, to feel, and to allow, um, you know, there's, there's very beautiful, wise parts of us that can give us support. And we can only access them if our mind starts to calm down. If we're so agitated and so worried about what to do and waking up in the middle of the night thinking, what should I do? that deeper wisdom in us won't have the chance to arise. So mindfulness helps us to calm down, to, to focus on something very simple. We can, we can say, look, I actually can't figure this out by thinking about it. I may be able to talk to someone and get mm-hmm. support, but mindfulness helps us to put that question down. I, I say in the book, it's like planting a seed in the soil of our mind. We let the seed rest down there and we, what what nurtures the seed, like the sun, like the rain, is our mindfulness practice. When we eat, we know we're eating. When we walk, we know we're walking. We just focus on the simple things we do day to day. And that will nourish that seed so that it will sprout on its own. And one day we'll just know what to do. We won't have to think about it. It will just sprout. Okay, this is the answer. This is, And we'll feel it in our body. It won't be this like back and forth, well, I don't know. We'll just know. And I think many of us have that experience of times when just something clicked and we just knew that's what we had to do. Yeah, it's almost like we make the decisions unconsciously. Is this, though, what you're, you know, at one point in the book, you talk about getting comfortable in the experience of not knowing. Is that part of what you just described? Exactly, exactly. So it's resting back into this unknown, you know, trusting, look, life is going to unfold. And I actually can't control I can't think my way through this. I can't try to, you know, put all the best, you know, put all the puzzle pieces together because I don't have all the puzzle pieces. Life is going to bring the puzzle pieces. And the more I can relax, the more those things will um, will come together. Okay. Well, can I get you to read another excerpt uh, from the sure. book? Okay. Sure. Um, so... This is from the last chapter, page okay. 110. 
When I was in the process of deciding to leave monastic life, I was terrified. I had no idea what would come next, and I was giving up security, love, and belonging for a totally unknown future with absolutely no guarantees. Yet I knew I had to take the leap and leave the safety of my life to see what would await me. It was the first time in my life I was making a decision that was not supported by most of the people I loved and respected. But as I listened to my own intuition, my inner voice, I learned that I could trust it. As soon as I made that first small tentative step into the unknown, it was as if the earth rose up to meet my foot and supported me. One invitation to teach led to another, and I was able to slowly begin to support myself and connect with communities that welcomed me in all my awkwardness of moving out of one identity, but not yet fully something else. Each step gave me more faith and trust that I could do this. Life was calling to me to keep going, and it continued to support me at every turn, even if I couldn't have seen quite how, just one or two steps back. I just kept going, and sure enough, there was a way for me. By walking, one makes the road, as the poet Antonio Machado writes. Excellent. Now, in the book, you write, and and again, this may puzzle folks unfamiliar with this uh, line of thought, that we actually need suffering and the experience of it in order to be truly free. Uh, That sounds counterintuitive. Can you explain that? Sure. So if I think about my teacher's life, um, the lives of many people who have um, touched into this incredible freedom, it's often come through hardship. Um, through difficulty. It's rare to meet someone who's had the perfectly um, <laughs> uh, comfortable life. They wouldn't be who, very interesting, would they? Right? <laughs> who, who, who's able to really guide people in difficulty because they haven't experienced it themselves right. and come through, right? Right. So uh, so we, we really appreciate things. Each of us can see this in our own lives. Like if we've had a, a toothache, Wow, when that toothache is over, we feel so good, right? Or when our headache ends, oh, what a relief. We wouldn't be able to appreciate that if we hadn't had the headache, if we hadn't had the toothache. Of course, there's there's a limit here. We're not talking about unnecessary suffering. We're not talking about creating extra suffering for ourselves. We're just saying life comes with a certain measure of suffering for most of us. And, you know, those experiences actually help uh, if we know how to practice with them, help us really appreciate the times of happiness, and they help us work to to make our life a more happy life, a more grounded and free life. If we wouldn't have had those situations of suffering, we might not have gone on the spiritual path to begin with. We might not have started to care enough about how we live to make changes. Well, you know, you also, in the book, you discuss uh, impermanence. Um, and I know that is a, a big concept in Buddhism. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what do you mean when you say meditating on impermanence? And I think you refer to the five remembrances in that aspect. Yes, yes. So this is a, a teaching from, from the Buddha to help us to um, face reality and um, front load our ability to handle difficulties, which often come when things change. 
right? So if every day we're reminding ourselves, look, one day I'll get sick, I can't escape sickness. One day I'm going to grow old, I can't escape growing old, um, which our society doesn't want us to see, right? We try to avoid aging. And then the third remembrance is, you know, I'm of the nature to grow, to, to die. I cannot avoid dying, right? That's also something our society, we're very death averse. We try to hide death. We don't, you know, we don't like to talk about it. So if we, if we say these things on a daily basis, we begin to lose our fear of them and start to work through our fear of them. So the fourth one is, I am of the nature um, everyone I love and all that is dear to me are of the nature to change. I cannot escape being separated from them. And the fifth one is, my actions are my only true belongings. They are the ground on which I stand. I cannot avoid the consequences of my actions. So these five things are things we need to remember because we have a tendency to forget them. It's much easier to go through our life not thinking about these things, right? Who wants to wake up and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to die one day. But they are not offered by the Buddha to make us depressed or, you know, feel sad. They're offered to help us actually see how precious this one day is that I still have to live because the rest is not guaranteed. But I'm awake. I'm here today. And let me really live it deeply, fully. When I look at the people that I love that are in my life, how can I live with them knowing one day we're going to be separated from each other? And what, what, how does that change the decisions I make about how I want to live with them, how I want to treasure them, and not, you know, uh, get caught up in petty things and arguments and blaming and judging, knowing, you know, very soon or unexpectedly I may have to be gone, they may have to be gone. Um, and so we want to use the time that we have to live as deeply as we can. And, and you know, the insight in Buddhism is if we, if we know how to live well, we will be able to die well. And that's very important, that the mind state that we have at the time of our death um, can, can play a big role in, uh, in just what happens to us, how we experience death and also the people around us so so kind of um facing it every day squarely helps us when we're at the moment of our death or when we get sick or when a loved one dies or when a loved one leaves us or we leave a loved one can help us to be more peaceful because we've practiced knowing yes this is a part of life i need to be ready for this well we're about to run out of time so but i'm going to ask you one more question Kind of a tough one, perhaps, to answer, although I think you've touched on probably the elements. Unfortunately, uh, we live in a fairly polarizing time. Uh, mm-hmm. Friendships have ended. Uh, families yeah. get splintered. And, yeah. you know, I'm going to put it all generically under the heading of politics. Your yeah. book, and I think this is what caught my eye about it, says we mm-hmm. were made for these times. Yeah. And I was striking a very positive note. Can mm-hmm. you tell us what it is that makes you believe, and maybe people can... Um, take this to heart, what, what it is that makes you believe we are made for these times and we can get through yeah. them. Yeah. Well, um, we are uh, incredibly resilient and creative and um, uh, surprisingly uh, innovative species. 
the human species. And we've gone through um, very difficult times before. Not, not only are we facing the political divisions that you mentioned, but we're facing the climate crisis and the pandemic and, you know, really things no other generation of humans have faced. And yet we also know that our ancestors have gone through pandemics in the past, ones that were even worse than this one that killed even more people, and they survived. They, they figured out how to, to make it through. And my own grandmother, great-grandmother, excuse me, who grew up in Tupelo, Mississippi, uh, she talked about making it through the, the big Spanish flu mm-hmm. in 1918 by boiling grapefruit uh, skins with her dad and drinking that, and that, that's how they kept kept from from getting it, from dying. So, we're so we re- have this in us, you yeah. know? We're resilient, in other words. We're resilient. We're resilient. And, you know, there's something about moments of great uh, challenge that, uh, allows things that haven't yet appeared to rise to the occasion. So um, it can be that really going through the deepest darkness of, um, you know, many things beginning to crumble and fall apart may call upon parts of our collective psyche that can actually spark a collective awakening. Like that is a possibility. We don't know for sure that it's going to happen, but we were made for these times because here we are. We're not supposed to be anywhere else. (laughs) And this is what these times are bringing us. And we each have something uh, to bring to this challenge, to to bring healing, to bring um, um, a a new way of being that can allow something else to emerge. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, you've been mm-hmm. listening to the Writers Forum. I'm Mike Tusi, your host, and I've been really privileged to interview Kyra Juolingo about her new book, We Were Made for These Times, 10 Lessons on Moving Through Change, Loss, and Disruption. And again, as I mentioned at the outset, there are uh, meditations uh, involved, and there are also journalist exercises, journalism exercises that you can do. Kyra, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me.